This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Okay, Exodus 18 keeps going. And I I think this is completely connected to chapter 16. And in fact, these should kind of go together. Um, Because the first word of Exodus 18 is and. I'm sorry, it goes with 17, so 17 and 18. The word is and, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, as though it continues right out of this wonderful image of intercessory prayer and having Joshua fight our battles for us. He finds some good men and they go fight and we pray for them, right? So, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done. So the legend is spreading, right? God is doing stuff on the planet Earth for Moses and for his for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses, Moses, father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses's wife, and after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, God is my help. Uh, For he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to the Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. All right, so this is an intro that's easy to forget uh, for the rest of the narratives that go with this intro. It's important to remember what's going on here. But let's start with verse 1 where it says priest of Midian. This is a tough one to translate. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham, Genesis 25, 1 and 2. Um, The word itself means strife, right? So he's a priest of strife. He deals with these, he knows how to deal with struggle. Most people believe Jethro is serving Jehovah in that capacity, Um I'm going to show later where I, I don't know if that's the case. It, it it could equally be read or interpreted that he's a priest of Midian, which is a people or country group, but he's a priest that serves various gods. So you come into the priest and say, you know, I need help uh, with my cooking. And then he would pray to the cooking god for you, a lot like the Egyptian priests, a lot like the Canaanite priests. Um, the priests could serve multiple gods and do that for you. Um, and I think Jethro is one of those priests. However, he knows of Jehovah, but in the first couple sentences, it says he's heard about what God has done. So it's not that he, uh, it's not like we have today where you either believe in God or you don't, you're of this religion or you're not. Um, these priests could believe in Jehovah and they could also believe in Ra and Isis and, uh, or, uh, um, Osiris and, and some of these other kind of gods of different countries. And when one God acts on the earth, like brings the Israelites out of Egypt, it's showing that there's amazing power with this Jehovah God, which a, a, a ancient priest would have had no problems dealing with a competition between the gods. They were largely uh, um, polytheists and would have been fine with that idea. So one way to read this is, hey, Jethro's showing up and he's he's a pagan priest and Moses is going to evangelize to him and bring him into the fold of Jehovah. And that I'm gonna I'm gonna give that perspective on this chapter. This intro tells us that there's maybe a second perspective on this chapter, and that is, hey, 
Moses is a deadbeat dad not taking care of his wife and kids and has totally abandoned his family and put them back on his father-in-law. And Jethro's bringing that family back to Moses to reunite a family. And and it's hard to read the first five verses and not see that that's the agenda of what we're about to read. But Jethro does it with such grace, such wisdom, he really doesn't even bring up his issues. He solves the problems that Moses has so that Moses can be a father again. And we're going to see at the end of this passage that it concludes with Jethro going home and not having the wife and kids with them. But we can see the wife and kids here are mentioned multiple times. That seems to be the point of this entire story. And I just want to bring us home to that. Um, the, the, the sons that are mentioned here, the first one's been mentioned before. The second son uh, gives us some indication that Moses was looking to God in verse 4 when, when his second son was born because that son's name is uh, God is my help. Um, that, that Moses was already kind of changing in, in himself. But this is really the first mention of that second son that we've seen. Uh, we have seen that Zipporah and Moses parted on bad terms. Their last words to each other were angry. Exodus 4.25, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the skin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet, saying, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, and then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Zipporah didn't want to obey God in this tradition, uh, and Moses did, and they parted on these terms, right? Moses let him go, and he went off, and he freed the people of Israel from Egypt, right? Um, So he went without them. There's a problem with this, though. Moses, though it might profit a man to gain the whole world, he's losing his own soul, right? He's losing his wife and his family. What will a man give in exchange for their soul? Matthew 16, 26. Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your kids to anger by the way you treat them. Bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. You can't bring up your children if they're not living with you. You can't teach them what the Lord has to say if if you're not in their lives. So Moses, by modern definition, is an absentee father. He's not taking care of his kids. And he's justifying that because he's doing the work of the Lord. This is a massive problem in our church today. We have people that dedicate themselves to the service of the Lord, and they don't take care of their own families. Who are the worst behaved kids in the Sunday school? All too often, it's the pastor's kids. They get away with anything. They're the pastor's kids, right? Same thing happens in a lot of leadership positions. Who are the kids that are the most sneaky in, in a lot of high schools? It's the principal's kids, right? Because you can't punish the principal's kids, right? There's a conflict of interest there. So here we have Moses leading two million people, doing really good things, but he's got something in his life he's got to work on. If we continue to look at Exodus as a story of our life, we can be following the Lord and working on things and and learning how to trust the Lord, learning how to pray. We can be doing all these great things, but forget about something core to what we're here to do, which is to build family, right? Even for single people, you you have parents and you have brothers and sisters. A believer can learn to fight his battles. They can learn to trust Joshua in, in the war front in the last chapter. And we can still forget that we have to love our families as best we can. And how do you do that? Especially if you have family members that don't love the Lord and don't want to talk about it with you. You know what? You keep the door open, and that's what Moses does. He keeps the door open. Look at how he reacts to his father-in-law. The door's wide open here, 
Verse 7, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. There is a welcome that Moses gives when Jethro shows up at his door. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. This is typical of ancient tradition. Uh, a dignitary comes, you, you welcome them, and you bring them into your tent. I also like the idea that Moses bows and kisses people. He's a leader of two million, and he has total humility. Like, he is not trying to puff himself up or give pretense or show himself to be a bigwig on, on campus. And Moses told, verse 8, his father-in-law, everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship they had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. You know, in verse 1, we saw that Jethro had already heard everything God had done, right? So he's primed to hear these God stories from Moses because he's heard about it from other places, right? The Holy Spirit gets people to listen to us when we want to talk to them and tell them about God. So just this idea that we don't have to convince people to listen to our God stories. There will be people that just want to hear them. They're just curious. So Moses does two actions. He bows and he kisses, right? How do we treat people that maybe are outside of our walk? We should treat them with the utmost respect. We should bow and kiss instead of yell and accuse, right? I love you. Welcome to Jesus. One of the things that really fumes me sometimes is when people come into the church and they're still wrestling with things that frankly are incidental and not necessarily even biblical struggles, right? We had a lady at our church that struggled with smoking. And she felt so much shame and guilt because she couldn't stop smoking. She was struggling with sin, right? What do you say to people like that? You just bow them and kiss them and say, praise the Lord you're struggling with it. Keep struggling. Don't just give in. Do the battle. Pray, right? And you know what? If you need to smoke, just step outside and have a smoke. We'd rather have cigarette butts on our curb than not have you here at church, right? Be here in the word. Do all the right things. You're on the right path. And you know what? When in, when God wants to take away that temptation to smoke, he'll do it. And he'll do it instantly. Chemical additions be not. God can conquer those things. And he has. And in most alive churches, we've seen people walk away from addictions on a moment's notice when they bring it to the Lord and they pray about it. And we've seen other others that struggle for years. Right? But God will handle things as, as you as you do that. And our job is to be gracious with these people, right? There's three things that Moses conveys verbally. He tells Jethro what the Lord has done. So he tells him God stories. Hey, look at what God's doing in my life. If God's doing nothing in your life, start eating your daily bread. We saw that back a couple chapters ago, right? What have they endured? He tells Jethro about what they've suffered through. Look at what we've had to go through, right? The walk of Christ, I'm struggling too, right? And then the third thing he says is how God has, how the Lord has delivered them. You know what? In all of our struggles, we've been delivered. And here we stand, healthy, happy, joyful, despite our struggles. So it's super easy for Moses to share his faith because God's doing so much in his life. It's natural to be excited when you see the God of the universe do things in your life. It's amazing. All you want to do is tell people about it. Notice here that Moses does not explain his theology. Jethro does not come to honor the Lord because he loses an argument with Moses, right? He comes to be with the Lord because he hears Moses' stories and wants to share and rejoice in those things. It's the next verse. It's not an argument that we see here. It's a complete enthusiasm for the word of God. How was your weekend? It was amazing. I heard the best Bible study in the world. 
and I can't believe how it how it speaks right to my life right now. It's a miracle. I got my daily bread. When you share things like that, people will either roll their eyes at you and walk away, or they'll rejoice with you. And when they rejoice with you, they're open. They want what you have because they're rejoicing with you. It's time to share those kinds of things. So what has the Lord done? Man, he gives me my daily bread. It's a miracle I'll never take for granted, right? He's faithful in the small things. What have you endured? Well, we were broke as a rock, but we haven't missed a bill. We just keep seeming to make it by. And I don't even know how the finances are working right now, but we're struggling. And I'm struggling with sin and my wife's struggling with, with worry and my kids are struggling with their self-esteem. We're all struggling. But man, the Lord just keeps delivering us. He keeps giving us exactly what we need every day. Can you believe that God is that caring of us? It's amazing. I think of a, a story of struggle when, when Steph and I first got married. <laughs> we were broke, right? We were still in college. Uh, we got married a, a little bit earlier because we didn't want to wait any longer. And... We were so broke and we were at the grocery store and we had this moment where we had to kind of count out what we were buying at the grocery store and we realized we had bought too much stuff. We had to put some things back. So we put back the things that weren't high, you know, they weren't nutritious and they weren't good for us. They were just things we liked, but they were expensive. And man, we had this little 12 ounce jar of Welch's grape jelly that I like to put on my toast in the morning. I just like the high fructose current syrup. I like the kick, but it nutritionally, it had next to no value whatsoever. And it was $5. So it was a big ticket item that didn't have a lot of value. So we put it back and we're leaving the grocery store and I'm just broken. And I just thought, man, I'm trying to do what the Lord's doing. I'm working two, three jobs. I'm doing everything I can do. And I can't even have my grape jelly. And I just prayed. And I said, Lord, this one hurts. I can't tell you why it hurts. But I feel like I'm doing everything I can do. And I can't even have this grape jelly. But you know what, Lord, if you want me to go without the jelly, I will. I'll eat my spaghetti noodles and, and, and do that sort of thing. But Lord, help me figure this stuff out and help us to build a life together. And it just meant so much to me. And I just kept bringing that pain to the Lord, right? And you know what? He delivered. Before we went home, we had to quick stop into a friend. I had a friend who was done with college. He was moving out and he had a piece of art he wanted to give to me, which has since disappeared because... Steph does claim she doesn't know what happened to it, but I think she threw it away because she didn't like it. Um, but this piece of art has disappeared. And we're picking it up, and we're hauling it out, and, and, and Brian just goes, hey, you know, Sean, like, we're going all the way to Seattle, so we can't even bring any of this stuff. Are you interested in any of this stuff? And he opens up his kitchen cupboards, and one of those dual opening, you know, two cupboard doors right next to each other, opens it up, and sitting dead center at eye level, right in front of me, is one of those supersized 36-ounce, 48-ounce jars of Welsh's grape jelly just sitting right in front of my face. I totally broke down in tears. It hit me exactly where it needed to hit me, and I realized, man, God even cares about grape jelly. Like He totally even cares about me. What kind of God does that? Of course, Brian has no idea why I'm bawling. And he's like, dude, if you don't want to take the phone, don't take it. But he does this. And I tell Brian about what's going on, what's happening. And he was just like, praise the Lord. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you. That's what Jethro does. Verse 9. Then Jethro rejoiced 
for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the name of the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the Pharaoh, who's delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. No, now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. For the very thing in which he behaved proudly, he was above them. Jethro even recognizes in that last piece, the very thing which he behaved proudly, he even recognizes how perfectly appropriate the plagues were to the religions of Egypt. How perfectly appropriate God did it. He even saw the symmetry, the beauty with which God does things in the world. So Jethro gives three responses to the, you know, Moses gives three kind of verbal things and Jethro responds threefold. He rejoices. God did what? That's amazing. Congratulations. I can't believe that stupid jar of great jelly is exactly what you needed spiritually. And I had no way of knowing that. I didn't even move it. It's been sitting there collecting dust for a long time. And then Jethro says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognizes God is doing things. Why? Your God is powerful. Your God does do things. And now I know Jethro believes. Now he knows something. He knows that the Holy Spirit is doing something and the Holy Spirit is teaching Jethro belief. Now I believe. That's what Jesus said to Peter too when Peter recognized that he was the Messiah, the rock, Matthew 16, 17, and Jesus answered him, You're blessed, Simon, son of Jodah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, that he's the Messiah, but my Father in heaven did. You know what? Moses isn't convincing Jethro of things. Moses is telling his own story, but the Holy Spirit is convincing Jethro. Now he knows that the Lord is greater than all gods. Well, if he's greater than all gods, you should serve him, right? So if God's powerful and he's in control, there's no other God to serve. Now he knows this. It's interesting. He doesn't deny the other gods and spirits that are out there. He just acknowledges that God's dominant over those things. Maybe God is better than sporting events. The way you're so excited, Moses, maybe God is more tantalizing than a movie. Because maybe seeing it happen for real is better than seeing it happen in the fake myths of Egyptian uh uh, mythology, right? It's the very thing that needed to happen to show up the pride of Egypt. And he and he's impressed with the symmetry of it all. The perfect order of God. Out of the hand, it says out of the hand a few times in this passage. Uh, the word is yad, which means hand, but it also means strength or one's portion. So out of the strength of Egypt, out of the portion of Egypt, um, you are from Egypt. You are from Pharaoh. You have, you are, uh, your people are from Egypt. Um, and they're still wrestling with things. So they haven't quite gotten away from the beliefs of Egypt, but they've gotten out of Egypt. That's impressive. And Jethro probably saw Moses leaving thinking, this guy's nuts. And when Zipporah came back home, I guarantee she was complaining about what a child of blood Moses was and how horribly he was. So Jethro, by listening to these stories, he's letting Moses tell where he's at. So going back to that narrative, Jethro's still on a mission here. Let's not forget that. We got a broken family he's trying to fix, but he lets Moses minister to him before he says anything about that. Isn't that kind of graceful? Then Jethro, again, in verse 12, we see Jethro's the main character here, not Moses. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before going to God. 
So Jethro makes a public, a very public sacrifice and declaration to Jehovah. He converts um, to the children of Israel to join with them on this. And he gives sacrifice in front of the elders, in front of the people. This is a lot like a public baptism, right? And so it was on the third day that Moses sat to judge the people. So Jethro's hanging around now for three days. Uh, three has significance. I don't know if that's a direct connection here, but he has this kind of connection for three days. And he's just going to watch what Moses is doing. And Moses is judging people a lot like they did in the ancient world. We saw this in Genesis with uh, Joseph, that he would sit all day and hear people's concerns. So Moses sat, sits to judge the people, and the people stand before Moses from morning until evening. All day, every day, Moses is working. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? And why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, basically, because this is what people do. I mean, this is how people lead. Because the people come to me and inquire of, of God. And when they have difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So orally, there's a law being built here by implication Moses is forming a, a set of laws that we're going to see later in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even parts of Exodus. We're going to see this law come into shape, uh, actually even in the next chapter. Um, and this law is becoming part of how they live. But Jethro is going to give some wisdom here. We're going to change the ancient world because the people of God don't have to do it the way the world is doing it. We can do it different. And I love how we see Jethro asking questions and learning about Moses before he tries to speak into Moses's life. Oh, that the Christian world could do more of this. We need to hear people before we tell people. We need to listen to people and see what they're going through before we think we can speak into their life, right? We can always tell our story right off the bat, but to tell other people how to live and what to do before you know what they're going through and what their story is and what struggles have caused them to be who they are. Notice the indication of from morning till evening. If Jethro's agenda is real here, that's an important phrase. Moses is never home. And his excuse is that he's serving God. But he's never home. Morning till evening, work, work, work. He's never serving the king uh, in the way that he should in serving the family, the, the, the family and the people of God. This is something that in Acts 6, the disciples had trouble with too. In verses 2 through 4, the 12 called the multitude of disciples to them and said, it's not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. We've got too many people in the church and we need to be in the word of God so we can tell people what God's saying. We need other people to help with some of the service pieces, right? And some of those servants, like Stephen, man, he gets to stand before the Sanhedrin. So it's not an issue of which job is better than the other. It's where is the best use of somebody's time with the gifts that they have, right? So Moses' father-in-law says to him in verse 17, the thing you do is, so my translation says not good, and I'm going to come back to that. I believe this should be translated, the thing you do is very good. Jethro's acknowledging what Moses does is a good thing. Both you and these people who are with you are going to wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you and you're not able to perform it by yourself. Jethro doesn't, uh, well, verse 19, now listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God and for the people so that you might bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they have to walk and the work they have to do. 
This is interesting because Jethro basically repeats back to Moses exactly what Moses just said. This thing you do, uh, the word there, it says not good, is actually the word tov. Everywhere else we see that word in the Bible, it means good. Over 360 times, if you click your Strong's button, tov means good. God is tov, right? Um, following the Lord is tov, right? It's good to do tov. For some odd reason here, they translate it not good. We don't know why. I'm not a Hebrew person. There might be some dot or tittle or, or somewhere in there that indicates a negative. But in just straight up looking at Strong's, that's a positive word. And it fits better with the narrative, if we remember the intro to this chapter, the narrative that Jethro's trying to work Moses a little bit to get this family healed. And what he's doing is he's going to Moses saying, look, Moses, everything you're doing is really good. But you need to go to God. He leads with this affirmation about the goodness of Moses' work. He doesn't ask Moses to abandon the work. What he does, though, is really wise. He asks Moses to get help with that work, just like the disciples. And he tells him to go stand before God. Go pray, Moses. Pray for the people, right? That's the thing we need you for. You're the one that talks to God for us. And I love how Jethro does this because this is, remember, a day after he makes a public proclamation and sacrifice to Jehovah. He's only a day-old believer, right? But Moses hears his advice. How long does it take for you to think in a spiritual way? It takes one day. You are transformed. You might struggle with sin for the rest of your life, but it takes one day for you to be part of the body of Christ. Welcome to the kingdom, right? God will start speaking to you instantly. And in this case... He speaks to Jethro and shows him, gives him clear eyes to see that Moses is in kind of a mess right now, right? Godly counsel always points you to God. Ungodly counsel points you to everything else but God, right? And this can be lambs and wolves in sheep's clothing. It can be really nice people saying, you know, if you're having trouble raising your kid, you really need to read Ted Tripp. Or, or, or Dobson, you need to read these books. Or it could be, you're struggling with your finance, you need to go you know, talk to uh, oh, whoever the finance guy is uh, for the Christian world, right? Or if you're struggling with worldly wisdom, man, you should read uh, this new book in the bookstore. There are hundreds, thousands of books that will tell you how to live your life in a Christian bookstore. They're good books, but they're not the book, right? No conference, no speaker, no writer can affect you the way that God can. If you want to know how to live your life, go read what God says in his Bible. If you believe the Bible's the inspired word of God, then go to God. Don't go to other places. Other places are fine. Do it for your recreation and entertainment. But start with God. And godly counsel always tells people to do that. And Jethro says that to Moses. What you're doing is good. Go to God. Because it seems to be too much. And if God says the same thing I say, then you need to act, right? The people are going towards God. The causes need to go towards God. And in verse 20, you need to teach the ordinance and the laws and the way we need to work. And those statutes and laws, they're central to what we're doing, Moses. You need to talk to God so we can see how to live. This is practical advice 
But then in verse 21, he gives this practice, or this was, I'm sorry, this was spiritually wise advice. Go to God. Now he's going to give practical wisdom. He's going to give a real suggestion. Verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place over them the rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it'll be a very great matter that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. It'll be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing as God commands you, and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure, and all the people will also go to their place in peace. I love verse 23. If you do this thing that I'm saying, and God so commands you to do it, in other words, this is a godly person giving godly advice and saying, look, don't take my word for it. You go talk to God, and if God tells you the same thing I'm telling you, then you know it's right. If God tells you to do the opposite of what I'm telling you, I might be in sin. I might be wrong. My opinion is not as important as God's, but I'm feeling it on my spirit, man. I got to just tell you, what I see in your life is a disaster. You got to turn to God. And if God tells you the same thing I do, man, you need to change. And you need to do it different. Verse uh, 21 has one of the first times we see elements of leadership in the Bible. What do we look for in leaders? And Jethro is telling Moses what to look for in leaders. And look at the four things you're supposed to look for. Ability. Leaders should have some sort of competence and they should have shown or be known for their ability. And here's the thing. Ability in any area can easily equate to ability and leadership right? If you have the focus, attention, and dedication as part of your character to gain competence in a field, even manual labor, like you're a good bricklayer, someone who attends to bricklaying is someone who can attend to leadership too. They have ordering control in their own life to where they've gained ability and skill. They can get, bring order and control to other people's lives too, right? It's one of those things you look for. Look for people that are competent. Have you ever had a boss that's not competent? Is it easy to follow that boss? And that's one of the struggles we have. It's not easy to follow someone who's incompetent and doesn't know what they're doing or is way above their, they're way beyond their head. And what happens with those bosses is that they know that they're incompetent and they become insecure. And now they can't hear sound advice because they're defensive. It has to be them coming up with it. They can't help the people under them excel in leadership and develop new leaders because that's a threat to their leadership. Right? Somebody might notice that that person's actually more competent than they are. So insecure leaders are born out of unable leaders. Able leaders, they're already competent. They're already known for their skill. They're perfectly okay letting other people thrive underneath them. And it happens that way. So fearing God is the second criteria. They fear God. And I think that goes with men of truth, right? The next piece. If we're worried about what God thinks of us, we're not worried about what men think of us. If God tells us the truth, we do not worry about telling other people the truth. Yet, the world says the opposite's true. Boy, if you speak bluntly and directly to people and tell them the truth as you see it, you could offend people and you could make them upset. And godly people often say, look, I'm telling it in love. I'm not trying to offend people. I can't control their feelings when they hear something they don't want to hear, but I'm more scared of what God's feelings are towards me. And God tells me to tell the truth or God's speaking this into my heart about this situation. And I'm going to say it. 
So you have to deal with what I say. And either you have room in your life for people that speak truth or you don't. But good leaders, if you're looking for them, they will speak the truth even in a tough situation. And they speak the truth in love, right? They're willing to do it not because they want to offend or hurt people, but because it's the right thing to do. And they don't want to offend God, right? So someone has to be speaking true. Look for those kinds of people. Then the fourth thing is hating covetousness. That's an interesting to throw throw in. I get ability. I get people that speak truth. I don't want a boss that's running around saying false things to make themselves look good. Um, I would love a boss that fears the Lord because I know they're going to be ethical even when no one's looking. I can trust that kind of boss. I can serve that kind of boss. But hating covetousness, well, that's interesting. What's the opposite of covetousness? And I thought a little bit, the opposite of covetousness is generosity. Because when you covet things, you want them, right? I don't know if I want a boss that's trying to accumulate things to themselves, right? I want a generous boss, one that'll pay me a fair wage, one that'll give other people credit when credit is due. But if someone covets and they hoard things for themselves, they become an awfully hard person to work for because you're, you're essentially helping them build their kingdom. And that's a hard thing to do. Coveting things is a precursor to selfishness, right? Or selfishness is a precursor to covetousness. It can go either way. If you want something that's not yours or, or, or you just want things, you're essentially serving this world. So leadership's to love God, hate sin, fear God, speak truth. And leadership is to not hoard things, to be multiplying things for other people, to help other people to thrive and to grow. This is tough when you see people doing self-destructive things. Sometimes a leader has to say, you know what you're doing right now is hurting you. You need to work at this. You need to challenge this. You're hurting other people when you gossip. Stop gossiping. Nobody wants to hear that, but it's the truth. And sometimes truth and love is exactly what people need to hear so they can make a decision. Follow God's law or don't follow God's law. Like Moses said, why are you mad at me? Be mad at God. God's the one that says not to gossip. God's the one that says not to steal. God's the one that says don't, don't move the boundary stones and take other people's land. Don't be a sneaky, slimy wolf. But, no, but sneaky, slimy wolves don't want to hear that they're being sneaky, slimy wolves. So you're asking people to do things that they may, they may be in rebellion against, but a good leader does it anyways because it's what God says. They establish the justice of God on the earth. Second Timothy 2 says, And the things that thou have heard from me amongst many witnesses, the same thing commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Timothy, don't be hoarding leadership for yourself. Spread it out. They shall bring to you good leaders. Delegation to, to other leaders is actually taking on the responsibility because they're going to take care of the easy stuff and what they bring to you is the hard stuff. Now, this is a hard thing when you're starting out in the workplace. It's more kind of a mid-career kind of thing where you start realizing you have people that depend on you and work for you. But that's more responsibility. It's actually more work, not less right? Good leaders have tons of people doing things and outdoing them, and they bear the burden of it. When we work together, the burden isn't as hard. Uh, Philemon, uh, or Philippians uh, 2.1, therefore, is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit, having one purpose. When we work together, the burden is not hard. But we have to be of one mind, not our mind, not my mind, 
not your mind, God's mind. We want to be one in Christ and work together, and then this stuff can work. That is good advice, Jethro. You are telling Moses something that will make it so he can do his job with people and still have time for his family. You see what Jethro just did there? This guy's brilliant. He's not yelling at Moses about his family because Moses is just going to push back and say, I got a lot of work to do. I don't have time for these kids and my wife. Jethro solves the core of the problem instead of dealing with the outcome of the problem, right? You need to lead, but I can see what you're doing, Moses. You have a good heart. You're trying to do good things, but you're doing it in a way that hurts your family. Do it right. This is a true brother in Christ or a father-in-law in Christ, right? Comes to Moses and speaks truth and says, boy, man, what you're doing is amazing. What's, what's there to push back against when somebody says what you're doing is amazing? Then he gives him great advice that says, maybe you should do this more efficiently. Great advice. How do you push back against that? Yeah, I like efficiency. I will do this better. So Jethro's, again, remember those first few verses, Jethro's advancing his cause with this advice, and he's pointing Moses to the Lord in doing so. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did everything he said, did all that he said. Deuteronomy 1 conveys that Moses also prayed to God here. So uh, Moses writes Deuteronomy where he he takes Jethro's advice to go pray too before he follows through with it. Uh, Verse 21 says the next day. So we see that this took a while for this to happen, a day or so for Jethro to see it and give the advice. But Moses listens to it after going to God and he gets this word of wisdom and he gets a spiritual gift of this word of wisdom from Jethro. And he then applies it to his spiritual gift of administration, right? It's not by chance then that we open up with verses 1 through 6. Jethro's trying to heal this family. He sees that Moses is doing good in verse 17. But he also sees that these boys are being risen without a father. That is not good. So instead of accusing Moses, he watches, he listens, he learns. Then he gives Moses excellent advice about those problems that Moses had. And sometimes God does that too. God can work through people to give us excellent advice that not only solves the problem at hand, but actually helps us in our spiritual walk in other areas and heals things in other areas. So we think we're ministering to others and God is still training us. And that's where you get the phrase where it's like, man, I learned more from you than you learned from me. We're all in this journey together and we're at different places in these journeys. Right? And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel. We get to see the fidelity with which Moses carries this out. Verse 25. And he made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every case themselves, every small case themselves. It worked. It worked wonderfully. We now have an organization of two million people in which order and law is being carried out efficiently and effectively. Wow. That's not what slave people do. That's what people who rule themselves do. That's what free people do, right? I like the idea that there's rulers of tens. I mean, we have 10 people in this room right now. So we could just pick out, say, Jackson, and Jackson could just be our ruler. And whenever there's a problem, man, Jackson has ability. He's a great drummer. Um, He has a level head, and he serves God, and he fears God. And really, we think he would tell us the truth more than making us happy, right? And he doesn't like covetousness. You see how he lives? He lives pretty simply, not just because he's a college student, but because 
he, he doesn't live beyond his means. He's not trying to hoard things to himself. He'll be responsible with that leadership. So we say, you know, we think he'd be a good leader. Better yet, Moses says, we think Jackson would be a good leader. And whenever we have an issue, we go to Jackson. But Jackson's wise enough to know if it's beyond him or a bigger deal, he needs to take it up to another notch, right? He needs, let's go talk to somebody else about this, right? <clears throat> So we have this ruler of tens that's going to come. The next thing that comes is the Ten Commandments. That's what's in the next chapter. So now we have Israel as a nation of priests, judges, people that can think, make decisions, discern things. Wow. We have a nation, and now that nation's going to get some written laws so these judges have things they can work from. This is a lot like our court system, right? <clears throat> Imagine if churches worked like this. Instead of building huge super churches with one big high-name pastor like Moses, what if we had churches where we had pastors that really only had 10 families in their flock within that church, right? So maybe there's a big super pastor, but we've got these small groups where we actually judge and, and lead each other through those small groups. And a small group leader would check in on people every week. How are things going? What's going on? And they would be able to pray for that small number of people, right? And we pray for those people in that kind of that kind of way. <clears throat> and we had churches that instead of hoarding resources to build the next biggest building, those resources are, are being used for ministry. Um, D.L. Moody says it's better to set 100 men to work than to do the work of 100 men. What great advice. It's so much better to build a nation, a kingdom, than it is to just try to do things on our own. And then the chapter ends with verse 27. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Bring that conclusion sentence back to verses 1 through 6. We have three people that aren't part of the conclusion. That's Zipporah and the two boys. So four came into this story, uh, or four, four people came to visit Moses, and only one goes home. So even the top guy in Israel, even Moses, had to learn how to get some time for his family. And it sounds like that's exactly what's happened. So this happens right after chapter 16, where people learn to get their daily bread and obey a Sabbath. Right after chapter 17, when God's going to handle strife and, and get living water for the people. Right after chapter 17, where the people are praying together and fighting spiritual battles. Now we see families grow stronger and organizations start to happen, right? Moses chapter 18, take care of your family. Strong families are going to legitimize Israel for centuries. They're still part of the stereotype of Jewish people, like Jewish mothers telling their kids to marry good Jewish, uh, good Jewish uh, spouses. And that idea of family is a persistent element in Jewish tradition from this point on. Faith, family, and then what we're going to get next is fire on the mountain. The Ten Commandments are coming. So chapters 19 and 20, we're going to get that. But the faith had to get built. The families have to get built. Those are the foundation on which God does his work on earth. What a beautiful thought. Don't know what you're doing or what you're doing to serve Lord? Serve your family. Take care of them. Struggling with your faith? Be in the word. Get your daily bread. Follow Jesus into battle. But take care of your family and organize your life in such a way that you do that, right? If you're not at the point where you're seeing these kinds of struggles or working these things out, maybe you need to go back to chapter 16. <laughs> Get your daily bread. Take care of your Sabbath. Make some things sacred in your life. Hold up Jesus as your banner when you meet anybody. Fight those spiritual battles and watch your family start to become that support network you need because you do that.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you fight our battles. You are our banner and we lift you high like the song says, Lord. We thank you that no matter how new someone is in the faith, you can use them to influence the life of even our great spiritual champions. Lord, may our spiritual champions never be so prideful that they can't hear the advice of someone. May that advice always point them to God. Let us never be so arrogant to think that we know something about other people um, that goes beyond the advice of you need to turn to the Lord. You need to seek him out. You need to read his word. That that's the center of our advice for everyone we know always. Lord, thank you for the heart and the humility of Moses, that he kisses and bows to his father. There's a respect, a deep love there. Lord, we thank you for Moses and the way in which even the great characters of the Bible have these sins that are things that are just uh, horrible. And Lord, we thank you that he repents and he takes his family back in and he organizes his life in such a way where he can do that. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the people that are willing to pray for others, willing to shepherd and minister to others. We thank you for the people that clear the tables. We thank you for the people that are in the word. We thank you for the people that um, encourage, admonish, exhort, rebuke. We thank you for those people in the church that are prayer warriors. We thank you that, Lord, our teachers our servants, our ministers, Lord, they're all trying to resemble you because Jesus modeled everything. Thank you. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Humble us. Help us to go to you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen.